This is Peace Talks Radio, the radio series and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, today with Yemeni Runjun. On this edition of Peace Talks Radio, we'll explore the challenges surrounding conflicts around cultural appropriation. Cultural appropriation involves adopting elements from another culture or identity that's not your own in a way that you might even think is an homage to that culture, but it may actually be harmful, stereotypical, or even exploitative. The lines are harder to draw between cultural appropriation and appreciation. The world's a global village, and cultures are constantly interacting, borrowing, remixing, and evolving. However, in cases of appropriation, there usually is a one-way transfer in terms of pleasure or income or opportunity, sometimes irking the people legitimately connected to the cultural being borrowed or stolen from. Correspondent Yemeni Ranjan explores multiple examples of cultural appropriation today with three guests who offer insights on how we can find peace and joy when we are interacting with traditions that don't come from our own lived experience and heritage. A little later on, we'll hear from Claudia A. Foxtree, a multiracial, multicultural, professional educator and social justice activist. Also, we'll talk with Harpinder Ma'an. She's a trauma-informed yoga teacher, mindfulness educator, speaker, and community builder. And she talks with Yemeni about cultural appropriation in the global fitness industry, specifically the commoditization of yoga. First up, though, we'll hear from Dr. Eve Dunbar. She's a professor of English on the Jean Webster Chair at Vassar College. Her research and teaching focus is on late 19th century to contemporary African-American literature and culture. With Dr. Dunbar, here's our correspondent, Yemeni Ranjan. Thank you for doing this with me. So you spoke about a seepage between cultural appropriation and cultural appreciation. How do you define cultural appropriation in today's context? We live in a culture that is so filled with seepages, to use your language. Um, So much of our lives, we live online. Um, We have access to the ideas and the words of other people all the time through social media, um, which is great, right? Um, Historically, especially in the United States, there under racial segregation and class segregation, all the different ways in which we figured out how to compartmentalize and limit people, um, there was a possibility for cultures to exist with very little, and by cultures, I mean marginalized cultures, um, very little kind of interaction with uh, or intrusion upon um, by the mainstream, by white people in particular. And so it was possible, especially when we're talking about Black culture, for Black people to develop um, a different way of singing, a different way of reading, a different way of dressing, all of these kind of cultural forms um, that had very little exposure or or white to, to which white people had very little sort of organic exposure. Um, But that said, there's always been an interest in the mainstream, by the mainstream in marginalized um, cultures. And so you can begin to see, for instance, if we take the early 20th century in Black music, you can begin to see white audiences clamoring for 
what sounds like a difference in a new sound in the form of like blues or jazz and wanting to read and be or listen and be exposed to that that culture to the point of then trying to appropriate the culture and disseminate or sell the culture amongst themselves so you get figures like you know the biggest cultural appropriator of the 20th century that we know of is Elvis, right? So Elvis figures out how to kind of appropriate a Black sound, a Black way of doing music, and he's white. And so it's more appropriate for white people to listen in a segregated country, for white people to listen to white musicians, but they still want that Black sound. And so Elvis figures out how to sell and, and disseminate that. And that becomes cultural appropriation, right? Wow. But I think that desire and that interest in, in this case, this example that I'm using, Black music and Black sound begins with a, a, an interest in listening or hearing or being a part of something that's so different from what you've known, right? So mm -hmm. it begins with an appreciation and then I think commodification turns it into appropriation. Yeah. yeah. I wanted to understand this as examples. What might be some of the instances of appropriation that might hurt the sentiments of African-American people? So what might hurt? How does it hurt? Some of the instances of appropriation that can hurt sentiments. I think that there are a lot of ways to do damage to um, a culture through appropriation. One is fiscal, right? So if Money. I am doing Black music as I have been taught to do Black music within my community and I sing, you know, the best songs and Hi. you as a non-Black person hear me singing the best songs and you come to my community and extract those songs and then re- appropriate them in a kind of more mainstream with a white artist who then goes on to make millions, I've been fiscally damaged because I have received no benefit, no financial benefit from my culture. That's an easy way. I think socially, right? And we talk about this with the browning of the nation, right? So women of color have been marginalized, penalized, um, violated in a variety of ways for not fitting standards of beauty as uh, we understand them through a Western lens, a beauty lens, you know, yeah. blonde, blue-eyed, fair-skinned, um, having features that meet that ideal, that beauty ideal of the West. Um, and yet, as we see in popular culture, uh, turn to features that had historically been affiliated with Black women or women of color, Latino women, um, being idealized or valued, um, I think there's some emotional hurt, right? So if I have full lips and historically full lips have been made a mockery of through like a menstrual tradition, right? Mm. And now... Yeah, getting your lips filled, getting lip filler, With getting Botox, yeah. yeah, you know, getting getting cosmetic surgery to have these more now I think we would say beautiful, sexual, like feminine features. Um, 
allows you to be famous <laughs> and for me to be historically maligned, that that causes some like emotional strife, some some sense of worth that's be- being diminished, right? So there's all sorts of ways like financial. I suddenly remembered Sarah Bartman's story. Yeah. The emotional impact, I think, on a lot of women of color is like, why now? Why not us? Why weren't we considered beautiful all these years? Even You know, yeah. at what point do these features become ugly? Is it skin color? Is it, what is it, you know? And why is it beautiful on some, on, on some bodies and not on ours? And I think that that can um, really diminish Mm-hmm. people's sense of worth right. in in kind of processing that. Dr. Dunbar, is cultural appropriation only an issue between different races and ethnic groups, or can it also happen within the same culture? I I know that there are people who argue that, again, I'm an African-Americanist. I specialize in African-American literature and culture. So my examples are mostly going to be Black. Um, American. So there's a group of people who would argue in particular that middle-class, upper-middle-class Black people appropriate the cultural expression of lower-middle-class, working-class Black people. Um, I don't necessarily agree with that understanding. I think the way that race works in this country is that it's visual. (laughs) And so um, I'm not sure that it matters, that class matters as much as we think it does. Um, It doesn't necessarily protect Black people. And we've seen this over and over again with the police brutality and police killings in this country. Um, Once class doesn't necessarily protect them from anti-Black violence. Um, And so it is something to think about the ways in which class might make someone less exposed to working class or kind of, yeah, working class experience. But I'm not sure if that constitutes cultural appropriation. Right. I don't I think that there right. is necessarily an extraction. I don't think Black people are able to extract Black culture in the same way that non-Black people can extract it. What's the best way to educate ourselves and others about cultural appropriation? How do we find the roots and origins? Um, I have this um, inkling where I thought, if I love something so much, I would want to know more about it. You know, uh, I love yoga a lot. How do I best educate myself and the people I know would take it? Like someone who is willing to learn. Yeah, I think that's really interesting because I also like yoga (laughs) and I'm not South Asian. Um, And there have been times in my life when I've been really into yoga, right? But I've also been into yoga that's taught by predominantly white people and not South Asians, right? Because I've done yoga in the United States. And I think understanding 
and I've had yoga instructors who are deeply invested in the spiritual component, who really mm. understand it as a spiritual practice that isn't a fitness practice, um, and have tried to, and, and they aren't South Asian, and have tried to impart that, and have you know, but they've gone to study in South Asia with, you know, yeah. particular yogis and so on. I don't know. I think it's tough. I think it's very difficult to figure out how do you participate in something that is not, that doesn't originate in whatever you imagine your culture to be or whatever it is Mm -hmm. um, in a respectful way. Right. And I think that that self-education, if you really, really do enjoy and love something, then if you educate yourself, then you can become a voice for education, (laughs) right? For rectifying the appropriation and the just kind of blind consumption of other cultures, right? This is not, I don't necessarily know if I believe that we can't, you know, we, there's cultural exchange and that's been happening for centuries among humans, right? Mm -hmm. That we exchange elements of who we are and who are, what our culture is. Um, It's when things get completely severed from their, their culture that the appropriation or the hurt can happen. And so I think, yeah, education, I think conversation always. Communication is the key. Yeah, I agree. (laughs) My next question is, do you think cultural appropriation should legally be prohibited? (laughs) There should be guidelines like, you know, how do you do it? (laughs) Is it a matter of social norms and personal responsibility or we can actually have, because I I was researching and I saw this uh, Canadian act that is being proposed to not use indigenous uh, items and made only with the material that they used to make it. Hmm. And there is an act going on and people are signing. So I was wondering if you know of a legal side of this or not, or should it, do you have any idea about this? (laughs) I don't see how you police the boundaries, cultural boundaries. I don't know. I think that's interesting, right? That you could imagine policy that says if this, if a culture makes or invents X, Y, or Z, you can't reproduce it. And yet I don't know how you police that reproduction. Yeah. I, um, yeah. And I also, I like the idea of it being something more than a personal choice to, to behave appropriately, but I don't know how you um, legislate it. I'd be interested to hear how this proposal fares and if it's, you know, put in place in Canada to see how they go about um, enforcing the policy and who, who gets, you know, if I do the thing I'm not supposed to do, what are the ramifications? What are the, what's the impact? Um, I'm interested like a thought activity, but I actually can't see it working. And the reality is, and I think about this with, you know, in the prohibition, right? The, the moment you make, you prohibit something, it goes underground and in some ways Mm -hmm. becomes more of a vice and more, um, dangerous. 
So, so you're t- saying that a negative is attached when you try to police it. Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I yeah. we're going to figure out right. how to do it how and, 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 and do more harm um, thereby doing it. I like the approach of companies asking for permission. And in like, for example, recently, uh, we have a very small number of uh, Southeast Asian people in Wayland. And I run a local podcast for them. Okay. <laughs> you know, I was very amazed to see a sports company coming to me and the community asking for permission to use the word henna for mm. one of their brown shoes. Like the shoes, like the greenish brown shoes. Yeah. They they asked specifically if there was anything about the name henna or the use of henna that would be considered spiritual or religious. So they were crowdsourcing. And I think it's interesting when companies are ethically outreaching, like the one that you described, right? Which is, <laughs> but that's also like, are we going to get any in any trouble if we do this? Ah, are people going to yeah. be offended if we do this? Yeah. And that's, is that going to cut the bottom line? But still like to, to reach out to informed people about how they would feel, yes. that's like probably yeah. a good business practice. How can we have conversation about appropriation? How do we do this? There's a way I'm doing it is through the radio program. Mm -hmm. You know, you write books, you speak about, and you spread awareness. I actually think people are young people. We always say young people, but I'm only saying that because I'm talking about the, like social media. I feel like there's so much that I've learned about appropriation, what constitutes, whether or not I agree with some of, because I think people do take things to extremes on both ends, that just being aware of the conversations, I think, is important. And I think you can fold that into <laughs> your consumption of social media really easily, yeah. depending on the circles that you run in. The circles that I like see on my feeds happen to be people for whom these questions are important. So I'm getting information all the time that is informing me and educating me on how to be a better member of a diverse community. And that's what, you know, going back to what I said earlier about kind of not wanting, not, you know, we all don't know everything, but when somebody tells you something and you choose not to listen to them, then, then you have culpability. Right. So I think being in a community that's diverse in a variety of ways and listening to people is so important and and being willing to change how you think or how you feel or what you do, I think, is really crucial. That was Dr. Eve Dunbar, professor of English on the Gene Webster chair at Vassar College and author of Black Regions of the Imagination, African-American Writers Between the Nation and the World. You can hear Yamini Runjun's entire interview with Dr. Dunbar on our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. Our conversation about cultural appropriation continues with our next guest, Claudia Foxtree, after this short break.
You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the radio series and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, today with Yamini Runjun. And you can find all of our episodes dating back to 2002 at our website, peacetalksradio.com. Cultural appropriation, our topic today, can be a loaded, confusing phrase. How can we borrow from other cultures properly and with respect? Claudia Foxtree sheds light on these themes in the context of indigenous people in our next segment, and she introduces herself here. Chagwe Dituno Kena Diatiano Daka Dira Claudia Foxtree Yerman and Yukiyaki Guiana Daka und auch Deutschmutterlich Zeit Kawaii Daka Iaha. So my first language is German and I even said that in my opening statement, and I am learning my tribal language. It happens to be a Taino variation of my tribal language. And in that language, I said, greetings. My name is Claudia Foxtree. By the way, I use she, her, and that my lineage comes from the island we know as German in the Caribbean, and that I'm a council member for the Guanilla tribal community. So I want to acknowledge that I am doing this interview on colonized land that was originally lived on by indigenous people, including the Pawtucket, the Penacook, the um, Agawam, and the Massachusetts that I know of so far. Thank you so much, Claudia. Coming back to our question, Claudia, how do you define cultural appreciation? Appreciation is things like going to theater performances by other cultures, reading books about other cultures, buying art from other cultures. It is the kinds of things that we do with art and literature, and those are totally appropriate, knowing what um, people have created and buying them for fair market value, you know, for lack of a better way of saying it. So that definition takes me to my second question, which is when someone shows initial interest and then goes on to get into the cultural appropriation side, there's a very thin line and then that is broken so often. How would you define cultural appropriation? I am not the expert and I don't think there's like a cultural appropriation police to be able to say what is and what isn't you know you might call it a thin line Mm -hmm. I just there's a line but I'm not the person to call the line people from the culture and that can be very specific like saying something from the indigenous culture is different than saying well if you're Diné or you're Blackfoot or you're Seminole Right? If you're looking at the specific nations, they might have a totally different line for something that's from their tradition, you know, right? So um, I wouldn't right. do a Eucharist in my classroom because that is something that is done in a Catholic church. And so there's a difference between right. these kinds of appreciations, appropriations that also has to do with time and place and whose thing it is that they're appropriating and that group's uh, definition. Having said that, is that 
cultural appropriation has a component of power in it. So it is when one culture has a lot more power, it's often the dominant culture here in the United States, we would say the the white European, often male, often heterosexual, dominant culture. So it's when a culture with power takes that another culture's intellectual property or traditional knowledge or cultural expressions or artifacts without permission, without regard, that's like the first step of cultural appropriation. What really becomes problematic is when it gets repackaged and defined by the dominant culture so that the culture of origin no longer has a connection with it, as in it is now sold and marketed without a knowledge of where it actually originally came from. Acknowledging it, which brings me to the question of uh, land acknowledgement statement that is being read in so many committees and organization. I wanted to ask you, what do you think it feels right now? Does it feel performative? Does it feel valuable? I think it can be performative. Let me say that but with the right intonation here. It can be performative and it shouldn't. <laughs> um, so I, I have heard it be performative. You know, this is whose land we're on. Um, I do workshops on it. And that's not where we want to be. A sign in your building maybe could be performative. This building sits on Wampanoag land. Maybe you could you could say more, but that'd be the closest to like that's okay performative that I would get was like, you've got a static sign. If it is a human okay. being, yeah, I get two things I want to say. First of all, we don't we shouldn't expect if we're in a place where indigenous people are hosting that they're going to do a tribal land acknowledgement because we don't invite people in our home and say no. let me tell you this is my home. Because you've just come and you know it's their home, mm. right? So indigenous people, I don't yeah. have that expectation for. People who are colonizers, which actually includes me because my nation's not from the land where I'm standing, need to re recognize that they are on someone else's land and that those people are still alive. And mm -hmm. by saying that, it's not enough. What, do, what have you learned about that group? Or what have you learned about Native issues and causes? Or what have you learned now that's different than the last time you stood there to talk about what a land acknowledgement was? And in that way, you up the ante in terms of, I'm doing a tribal land acknowledgement, and I'm raising the visibility by telling you something about Indigenous people. Then it becomes real. Then it becomes you're trying to be an ally and have a relationship. If you have a relationship with a local Native group, that's really ultimately the purpose of having a tribal land acknowledgement to show that you're going to be learning through the people whose land you're actually on. So I have been doing that with um, the nations whose land that I'm on. And so I can tell you that Nipmuc means freshwater fishing place, that Massachusetts means uh, large hill place or at the Great Hill, that Agawam means marsh or low-lying lands, that Pawtucket means uh, at the bend in the tidal river, right? So anything that adds visibility to what has been invisible for centuries right. 
what is the exact terminology we should use for you know first nation or indigenous tribe or like what 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 would you say will be the right term to use the best term to use is the name of the nation so if we're talking about totem poles or clan poles we would be talking about whichever nation the kwakayutl the tlingit you know, whichever nation it is. If we're talking about the nation of greeted pilgrims, we'd say the Wampanoag. Uh, in the beginning, when there was first contact, everybody used the specific nation. You arrived somewhere from Europe and you had less power than the people who were here in these lands, at least in the beginning. And so you learned what they did for survival and you knew exactly who they were. Right. So the best is the specific name. It's the difference of seeing saying, the Korean, Japanese, and Chinese, and Asian, right? Using the specific name is the best. Right. Uh, Canada does use First Nations, and we've used all kinds of words. And in my 30 years of having these kinds of conversations and writing and doing this work, I have started with, I'm just going to use First Nations in my writing, or I'm just going to use Indigenous people in my writing. However, everything, all those words, there's two things I keep in my mind. One is they're all problematic. Indigenous people are larger than just the North and South American continent. In fact, there are Indigenous people, you might be an Indigenous person from another place that comes here, who's still an Indigenous person, right? So people come here and they're Indigenous, even if they're not Indigenous to this land. Um, And there's indigenous people all over the world. So that word's problematic, right? Native is problematic because anybody born here is considered native to here. Uh, American is problematic because we're just talking about from 1776-ish, right? Um, And Indian is problematic uh, mostly because it wasn't what we called ourselves. And it was probably... um, a slur or morphed word that was originally used, probably Indios, which means in God, not about India, because India was not called India in 1492. So the word got attached much later. And there are generations of uh, older folks, the elders, who prefer to use Indian and feel like, why should we give up that word? That other group wasn't using the word, (laughs) right? So the It's very complicated, and I'm always learning more about it. So the words problematic, all those words, right, any combination of those are problematic in terms of describing the people. So I tend to say, I'm going to be talking about Indigenous people, and here's a map. All the people here in what we now call North and South America. Having said that, I've changed how I do it in my writing and talking. I now interchange every word. Um, Partly I use American Indian, Native American, uh, you know, indigenous. I use them differently because in the United States, the laws use all those different words. So currently we're hearing indigenous people because of the indigenous people's day, the don't use Columbus Day, use Indigenous People Day. So that's what's in the law. But it's been other things in the law. And I wouldn't Mm -hmm. want somebody with power to say, oh, there's no more Native Americans. So I guess this law doesn't apply to you. 
oh, there's no more American Indians, then I guess this, you know, freedom of religion law doesn't apply to you. So I purposely now use all the words to say we are talking about all these people that you've identified in different ways in this legal system. I'll add one more piece to that, Mm -hmm. which is the problem with the word Indian isn't 1492. The problem is that the Wampanoag, the Diné, the Cherokee were sent to Native American boarding schools in an effort to erase their identity. And that's where they started being called Indian. And so the problem is that that word was used to erase their tribal heritage. Right. Oh, wow. I This is so informative. And I, I recently introduced myself as an Indian and to, to a First Nation elder. So if a non-Indigenous person wants to borrow elements from your culture, what questions should they first ask themselves? Why do you want to borrow them? And do you have anything in your own culture Mm -hmm. that is equal? So a lot of people will say, you know, I love the connection with nature or the earth. But if you go far enough in your own heritage, there probably is a group that has that connection with nature and earth. So, you know, why are you borrowing it? Um, clearly, if you're borrowing it because you want to make money from it, that's going to be problematic. If you're borrowing it because you want to talk about it, then it's like anything else we could say we're borrowing. I'm borrowing a line from this book, but I'm going to cite it and I'm going to give credit to the people and the person who wrote it. So, you know, why are you borrowing it and what's the context of borrowing? Because giving credit is a big piece of it. The other thing is, um, using it in the way that it's meant to be used, not some other, not some other way. So here is an example. I'm going to say a word. I want you to imagine what this word means. It's an indigenous word. A lot of people think of it not as an indigenous thing. So here's the word, Winnebago, Winnebago. Did you think of Mm -hmm. the Ho-Chunk people from the Great Lakes area, because that's who they are. They lived in the past. They live in the present. They have many, many industries. Right. Or did you think of a huge recreational vehicle? Right. Right. So a Win- Winnebago oh, yes. has been appropriated and used in a way that is no longer even connected to the original people. That is the extreme problem harmfulness of what can happen with appropriation. I see. Wow. Yes. I can see that. So what would you say some of the, you know, what are some of the sacred elements in your culture that shouldn't be adapted or you don't, you shouldn't even be asking permission to use? You know, every tribal nation is a little different and they are going to have different lines of what that would be. So I can tell you in general, my experiences meeting people from other nations and having these kinds of conversations, and I'm not a spiritual elder or anything like that to be able to really say what the definitive, what's sacred, what's not. Um, But talking to other people, some folks, uh, mask making is very traditional in their culture, and they would not want you to, in school, make masks. I know regalia is very sacred to many people. And so uh, not only would making regalia and on your own be problematic, but deciding to make it out of, say, brown grocery bags and say it's 
regalia is problematic. Some cultures, some tribal nations have um, hats, totem poles, certain kinds of images that they use in their jewelry making or painting. And those would be considered sacred, that you wouldn't use it out of the context of understanding what it means in the tribe. Each nation would have its own thing. I know masks have come up and clothing has come up in schools. You know, everybody can make a pouch, but making a medicine pouch is an indigenous thing. You know, what you put in that pouch and how Mm -hmm. you think about it is a traditional native teaching, not necessarily Western European teaching. Right. So, Claudia, how do non-Indigenous people show up for Indigenous people? How do we show up for you? It's a lot bigger than cultural appropriation. I mean, that's just a small part of the problem. Yes. And cultural appropriation is harmful because it's one of the extensions of centuries of racism, genocide, and oppression. This is not yes. somebody being offended that you're doing it. It is something related to being, yet again, oppressed by somebody doing it. And the context is that Indigenous Native people never migrated to somewhere else in the world. It isn't like you're going to find a whole bunch of Wampanoag people in the middle of Germany. Right? There was no mass migration. So indigenous people are still here on their original lands of what we know as North and South America. And so when small aspects of the culture and traditions are appropriated or stereotyped, and that is all that you see, there's nowhere else in the world where the accurate information is, if not here. And the history, culture, artists, musicians, authors who are Native American here in this country are almost invisible. The visibility is the little pieces that are stereotyped. And so the context of this is the only place it needs to be and should be is where allies and people who want to support Indigenous people comes in, that we need the voices lifted of the people whose land we're on. We're on somebody else's land whose stories are misrepresented, misunderstood, uh, and have been totally formed through a dominant narrative instead of the people talking for themselves. Um, So that piece of visibility is the best thing that our allies can do. You can find links to Claudia Foxtree's interview and work at peacetalksradio.com. And that's where you can also hear Yemeni's full extended interview with Claudia Foxtree, peacetalksradio.com. In a moment, another deep dive into a cultural appropriation within a practice that has expanded well beyond its roots and origin, but not without a cost, some think, right after this break.
This is Peace Talks Radio, the radio show and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls today with correspondent Yemeni Ranjan, and today she's exploring cultural appropriation. It has become more prevalent in our society and our lives over the last many years. The world is more and more a global village, and it may seem natural to be borrowing from foreign cultures, but when does appropriation have negative impact or connotations? Our next guest is Harpinder Mahan, a trauma-informed yoga teacher, mindfulness educator, speaker, and community builder, currently living in Tongvaland, L.A. Harpinda focuses on bringing yoga to her students the way that it was shared originally in India as a path towards spirituality. Again, correspondent Yemeni Ranjan. As an immigrant coming to this country seven years ago, and it really blew my mind. I was like, I was amazed. I was like, wow, this is is so popular. I haven't seen any yoga studios in India. And um, I think it was 2011 or 2012 that I entered Canada. So from there, my journey has been such that I've seen so much happening with yoga Mm. now. I want to begin with how do you describe cultural appropriation in terms of yoga and yogic practices? Yeah, absolutely. So I think if we were to turn to the definition of cultural appropriation that I often use in workshops and um, something I shared to my social media, how you found me was cultural appropriation is when a member of a dominant culture takes aspects from a culture that is not their own and uses them for personal interest or profit without regard for the context or pays respect or acknowledgement of the culture it's taking from. It can also be a way to reinforce stereotypes and contribute to oppression. This cultural appropriation shows up in a number of ways in yoga. I feel the simplest way we see it is people just equating yoga is exercise. Yoga is a physical modality and it, it, it begins there and it ends there for a lot of people in the West. And that's the biggest way that I see cultural appropriation showing up, but I'm sure we'll cover in this episode. There's so many ways in which it shows up and the way that we don't pay respect to the land that that it comes from. And we don't take the time to even care or think about what are the true intents and goals with yoga? Why would someone be on this path? Why is it sacred for so many people on this path? And I think to, to get away from how sacred it is, is where I come in and why it's so important for me that we try to bring back the reverence, try to bring back the importance of understanding what yoga actually is. I uh, started noticing the different the, the variety of yoga that I was served as a platter to choose from. I really want to understand this, but authenticity is always welcomed. But what is your take on different fusion styles in yoga that is now very popular in the West? You know, do you see a blurred line between appropriation and appreciation? Because as an as a new person, as a new citizen, I felt like this was a great opportunity. They were doing so much to yoga that we did in back in India, you know. There's a lot to unpack in just your question alone. And mm-hmm. even to what you said, 
around how you went into these yoga studios and it was heated and you almost had to convince yourself. You're like, okay, it must be heated because they're trying to replicate. And I find sometimes it's like we're convincing ourselves. We have the sense like, wait, something isn't right here. But instead of being able to voice it, to say it out loud, instead we almost gaslight ourselves and we're like, well, it must be for this reason. And then it must yeah. be okay. And I, and I think like, then turning to cultural appreciation, in my definition, is taking the time to learn and be a lifelong student, showing respect and reverence, honoring the culture and people, and crediting cultural practices from other cultures. Also being willing to try to understand and admitting when you're wrong or have caused harm, whether unintentionally or intentionally. I think this this blurred line conversation between cultural appropriation and cultural appreciation comes in when there are people of South Asian descent from India, from the Indian subcontinent that come into these classes and they're just like, wait, why is the studio heated? Wait, why are we practicing what's being called vinyasa? Um, yeah. Why, right? Like, why aren't we talking? Why aren't we practicing meditation? Why isn't there any pranayama? Like, where is the philosophy part of this? Like, why yes. aren't any of those things elevated? And something else I was seeing going into these studio spaces, why is every teacher white? Um, I was like... <laughs> Like not even one single Indian teacher. Yeah. And I, I took a course with Dr. Neil Dalal. Um, and the course is called Decolonial Yoga. And he actually talks about how South Asians are excluded on purpose, are excluded mm -hmm. from purpose from taking up spaces of power in these spaces, because then we would say, hey, you're not doing it right. That's and, you know, I mean, right, it's subjective, but it's like from our perspective, it being our ancestral practices, that maybe you should do it a different way. And I find right. a lot of these people that have the power, they want to continue to profit off of it. They want to continue to do it the way that they've been doing it because it it serves their interest. Um, and what and who I appreciate in these conversations is those people when you're like, hey, maybe the and I actually saw this in a studio recently, maybe the picture of um, Buddha in the bathroom, maybe he shouldn't be in the bathroom. Why? Like Buddha, this revered idol, this example of being an enlightened being that then used himself being enlightened to serve others that were suffering, like revered by so many people, revered by me too. What's the place of Buddha being in the bathroom? Why? Why? Right? And it's like, so my question to you is, when somebody or someone is practicing it not in the usual way we have seen growing up, how, how do you stop that? What is the interpersonal work that I need to do? And what is the step I should take in, in making other people aware? Hmm. Yeah, I think those are um, two really great but also linked questions where one, you notice the discomfort arising. You notice the, huh, that's not right. Because um, yeah. I, I think for many of us coming from um, these backgrounds know that we're bringing in like the living sort of spirit essence and inviting them into our homes when we when we have the statues and the pictures. Mm -hmm. and, and I think what's happening in these yoga studios is they're doing it as decoration. 
It's a form of decoration of saying, oh, look at us. We're practicing yoga. Oh, look, it's spiritual without actually knowing why. What's the connection behind it? And I think for us to not ignore that, to not be like, well, it's, I guess it's fine. I feel weird about it. I feel uncomfortable. I'll just let it go. I don't think so. I think taking that time to sit down, to contemplate, to reflect on why do I feel uncomfortable? Because I think there's wisdom there. Um, and I'll talk a little bit more about this in terms of like histories of colonialism, of oppression, um, of Orientalism, how that all plays a part into this as well. But first, you know, sit that, sit down, take that time to really um, sit with the discomfort. And I second, secondly, I think we should speak to the teachers, to the studio owners, and we should say something. I have an example of one of my first private um, yoga students who now has become a very close friend of mine. One of the studios that she was teaching at very briefly had Ohm in the bathroom. And she went to the teacher and said, or the owner actually, and said, there's an Ohm in the bathroom that to me is very uncomfortable because Ohm is such a sign of like reverence, the primordial sound. Um, in the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali says, if you want to realize God, then contemplate Om, then meditate on Om. And it, you're right, so reverent. Went to the studio owner and expressed her concerns. And the studio owner said, well, I spoke to someone else as Indian and they said, it's fine. So it's fine. And my friend quit. Oh. She, she quit teaching at that studio. Um, yeah. And I think the lesson there for me is that we have to speak our truth. Yes, there might be fear of like, and we'll talk also about like power over um, and like power under the four types of power because that plays into it as well. Because sometimes speaking up means that maybe you're going to kick, get kicked out. Maybe it means the relationship will be over. But I think yes. as a student in a space, take up that power and say something. Mm. Have a conversation coming out of compassion coming mm -hmm. out of a place of like, wow, I, I really want you to understand why this pains me. And I wish for you to understand. You may not agree, but I wish for you to understand. And I think That's it's important point. to to bring it up so people start to understand. And and some teachers in the space also talk about things like, should I, should I end my class with namaste? Should I use Sanskrit? Can I have the decor up? is really just the tip of the iceberg. There's like so much more that's underneath that, right? Because like, why does it cause us pain to see that? Like, why does it cause you, I'll ask you, like, why does it cause you pain to see that, that Lord Ganesha and then everyone's drinking wine and charcuterie? It hurts on a personal level. Why do you think that is? Why, do you think it is because I'm aware of that and people are, probably letting it pass, letting it roll because they've not, they don't come from that history. Do you think history is important? And what is the fastest way of educating myself? If I was not educated in the way I was, what, is, what do you think is the fastest way of approaching awareness here? That's a fantastic question. I think that's also a fantastic observation that you had where you're taking that seat of why does this bother me? Why does it bother me? And it doesn't seem to bother anybody else. Why is everyone else practicing goat yoga, wine yoga, beer yoga? And they seem to enjoy it. So why can't I also just enjoy it too? Why do I feel 
angry about this, triggered about this. And I think to come from that space of, again, that contemplation is very important because there's a reason that you're being triggered. There's a reason that you're being like, wait, why is this happening? And what I, what I, where I want to affirm you here is you're not the only one. You're not the only one that feels like this is a problem. And the specific example, say, of like beer yoga, wine yoga, absolutely just makes me just shake my head. And I feel like sometimes with these things, I've gotten to a point where I just have to laugh where I'm just like, okay, (laughs) okay. But when we think about like yoga philosophy um, and the yoga lineages, there's absolutely nothing about alcohol. When I think about the consumption of alcohol, to me, that's adding in more maya, that's adding in more illusion. That's not helping to bring a sense of clarity. Um, And in conversations with people, I've had people say like, well, because we had beer yoga and wine yoga, at least more people came to yoga, right? And I'm like, they didn't come to yoga. They came to an experience. Like, let's take the yoga off of it. Why don't we call it beer Pilates? Why do we keep taking yoga and adding different things to it? And I think the answer here is because yoga is has has become this thing that's easy to commodify, that's easy to market, and there's billions of dollars being poured into it. So people see that. They're like, how do I get more people here? How do I make more money in the name of, well, at least they're practicing yoga? They're not. They're not practicing yoga. There's an experience that we're having, and we're creating more confusion. When When I think about yoga being this path and practices that help us burn away avidya, that ignorance. And what is avidya the ignorance of? It's the ignorance that we're spiritual beings. So I think the the anger that maybe we're experiencing is that we're seeing because maybe we're seeing a little more clearly or maybe we're not. Maybe I'm not enlightened as, as much as I maybe want to be. But say we are. Say we are seeing a little more clearly and we're able to see, hey, we're spiritual beings. When we drink alcohol, that isn't doing anything to, to connect us to that spiritual dharma that we have, that us as spiritual beings. And I, I think for us, if we are experiencing feeling triggered or angry by these things to let that be okay and not just brush it away and not just be like, oh, it's okay. I think more of us that feel this way need to keep speaking about it. So this comes from one of my teachers, Dr. Neil DeLal, who is fantastic. And like I said, has that course, Decolonial Yoga. What he talks about, so when people are thinking about the cultural appropriation of yoga, sometimes they're looking for a checklist. Can I use Sanskrit? Should I say namaste at the end of class? Um, Can I wear a bindi? Um, And what he says is a checklist is not enough. So the real inquiry and deeper work here is in understanding the roots, theories, and history so so we can see a cultural appropriation happens as a result of colonialism, oppression, and Orientalism, which have been internalized into us. Um, right. And so I think maybe we can turn a little bit of time right now into um, talking about the definitions of colonialism and talking about how colonialism affected South Asia, how it affected the Indian subcontinent and how that changed yoga and how that affected it. Because I think 
and what we were talking about, like if, if a yoga studio is doing something that's making us uncomfortable, can we go and ask them, can you change and have that question? I think that's a conversation also of like oppression, who has the power. Um, and that yeah. plays a part into cultural appropriation because it in cultural appropriation, it's looking at the taker and the taken. So it's the mm-hmm. dominant culture that has more power that's able to take aspects of a culture and use it for their benefit without having to ask permission. There there right. wasn't any, and it's hard because yoga isn't actually like owned by anybody and there's no one to really truly ask permission for. So, so I think like to what we explore here then with cultural appropriation is like the taking that happens, the taking without giving credit, the theft that can happen, the erasure that can happen. And the dilution of the practice. And the dilution that happens, the whitewashing that can happen, the exotification that can happen. And, and I find it's the exotification that sometimes plays into when it's just an asana class, there's pop music playing and at the end, everyone's like namaste and like, bow together um, and that's maybe the only remaining sign that this has this has anything to do with with the yoga from south asia that was yoga instructor and community builder herpinder maan you can find out more information about her and all of our guests at our website peacetalksradio.com look for the program originally broadcast in june 2023 you'll find links to the longer version of our program there and the yemeni's complete interviews with each guest That's where you can also go to hear all the programs in our series dating back to 2002. You can see photos of our guests, read and share transcripts, sign up for our podcast, or importantly, make a donation to keep this program going into the future, all at peacetalksradio.com. Most of our support comes from listeners just like you. Some too from the Albuquerque Community Foundation Ties Fund and support from the University of New Mexico's KUNM radio station. Nola Daves-Moses is our executive director. Ali Adelman composed and performs our theme music. For Yemeni Runjun, I'm Paul Ingalls. And for our complete staff here and for co-founder Suzanne Kreider, thanks so much for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio. Peace Talks Radio.